Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds, and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Today's cool fact of the day is actually a little bit retro. Every time you lick a stamp, you actually get about one-tenth of a calorie from the adhesive on the stamp, except... Let's face it, who actually licks stamps anymore? They're all self-adhesive, and that's no fun. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD+, and that helps you make energy, it helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD+, levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD+, even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD Plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD Plus. It's what I use. Today, we've got Reichardt von Wolfschild as our guest. Reichardt's a technologist, inventor, artist, and futurist. And starting in his teens, he designed and built a computer CPO from computer CPU from scratch. In the early 1980s, he helped MTV when it was tiny, and then he started his first successful tech company, which developed artificial intelligence apps. I met Reichardt a few years ago at the Build Conference, which is kind of like the TED Conference's redheaded stepchild. It happens alongside TED, and found he was just an amazing innovator. And that's not too surprising because 
He's developed more than 120 products from companies or for companies like Boeing, Disney, DreamWorks, and Mattel. And he was actually the co-founder of Bill, the conference. Reichardt, welcome to the show. You've got an amazing background. I'm really happy to have you here. Thank you. I wanted to talk today with you about a couple things. The first one was more of like the systems thinking, and the other one was just about innovation. And you actually now are on TV as the host of Invention USA. So innovation and invention are, are at the core of what you do. But how does systems thinking fit into invention? Interesting. Uh, well, as far as invention goes, invention is such a multidisciplinary uh, area um, because invention can be in absolutely every area. The one thing that I think invention holds in common is who's ever making something for the very first time, they're up against uh, all of the problems of the naysayers in terms of culture. And then mechanically, they're up against physics itself, the problems of why this hadn't happened in the first place. The reason things need to be invented is because it required one more thought, at least one more step than what was before. So in terms of systems thinking, um, you have to sort of look at a bigger picture as to how people use things. You're looking at marketing. You're looking at design. Uh, and uh, you, know, you hear these quotes like, oh, it's you know, 99% uh, perspiration. Yeah, uh, it turns out to be much truer than everyone wants to realize at first. They think it's just a quote, and, and when you're really there making things, shy of a very small number of people that get lucky, most people suffer greatly trying to invent even the simplest thing. So suffering and invention go together in your view of the world? Uh, sadly and deeply. <laughs> at the same time, uh, knowing a few things about you, uh, you're also kind of lazy in, in that you also think about you know, getting the best bang for your buck in all aspects of the life. So it, at its core, invention is about doing things with less work. Is that Absolutely. what motivates you? Is, is it like a core laziness? Uh, no, <laughs> I'm, I'm, probably, I'm probably a strange one, but I mean, I'll, I'll address, I, I agree with you. I actually am extremely lazy and I will spend endless amounts of energy not to do anything. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, there, there, there actually is a different reason, um, and, and this, is, this, is, this is a sad part of my personality. I'm just deeply neurotic, so I hate everything. I don't like the way anything is designed. I don't like touching most things, and everything I look at, I'm constantly thinking about why is that annoying me? Why does that make so much noise? Why does it break so easily? These are very common you know, themes in everything that I look at. Um, how can I get more bang for my buck uh, is, is a good statement. But funny enough, I, I've, I've um, came to a recent, even this year, I came to a, a really strong realization. I was, I was talking with a friend of mine uh, who is a mathematician and he's, uh, he was at the time he was at Google and he was designing the top entry at Google. Like when you type something in, you get this result. And uh, he and I have been friends for a while. And as we're talking, it hit me very strongly how we've become this culture where I call it the one million lines of a button. And it's the idea that we have these buttons around us, buttons on websites and physical buttons on cars and on machines that we have around us. And when you press that one button, behind it is a million lines of code. It's very similar to like the, you know, the, the space shuttle, if people could see it. It's, it's, the original uh, shuttle only had, like I think, 64K worth of, uh, worth of uh, code, uh, not, not a million lines, but let's, 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 call, let's call it you know, 64,000 lines as an example. Um, and still, it really only did a couple of things. It, you know, it, it, it launched you up, and then it returned you back. 
But if you saw the flowchart for that, it would be incredible. But it really came down to as best as possible one button that you hope you pressed in it and it did what you expected it to do. So I, I tend to think of everything, even even the flushing of a toilet being a single button, there's actually a lot going on with levers being pulled and water pressure and you know seals and all these things that happen uh, and enough flow and force to cause it to clean itself. And this sounds you know sort of banal, but this is the truth of inventing. Inventing is all about dealing with the dirty work and figuring out how to simplify it. So it's not just that I'm lazy on the one side. I, I, I do want to simplify the world around me. It's that it's very noisy to me. So to me, invention is part of um, making the world around me simpler. That is a very eloquent way of, of describing it. And uh, we share that view of the world in that you know, when, when something isn't done right and it, it's done in a way that's suboptimal or that wastes time or energy, it, it just kind of itches and something needs to be done to fix it. Exactly. I, I tend to do that with cooking and with, you know, supplements and food, but all of that comes down to, you know, I, I want my body to work better so I, I, you know, don't have to do so much to make it work better. Like it should just be built into all the things that, that we do. And part of what, what led me there was, you know, breaking everything that I can think of down into, into a system. So I understand, you know, this leads to this leads to this. And I know you do that. How do you do that? They're like, what are the steps you take when you're going to systematize a solution to a new problem, which is kind of how you're inventing things. So I'm going to, I'm going to describe this in a, um, a slightly different angle, but it's going to answer your question. Um, so, uh, uh, I'm currently working in fact with a, with a friend of mine who I've agreed to help him with his big project. He's building a very large website and he's never had anything to do with technology before. So he comes from a, a different discipline altogether. Um, and so I'm teaching him how, how technology works. And it's a very, it's, it's a horrible process. It's like, you know, like watching sausage being made. Uh, I told him he would be scared at night and have nightmares and, and, and he is now because he's seeing how software is actually made and it's spaghetti code behind it. It's horrible. And it's, you know, you have to, you have to cut corners and, you also comprehend all of a sudden, and, and, and this is the exact analogy I give to people, imagine the most elegantly designed anything. Let's say it's a, a, a super fast race car, something that's just beautiful. Now, I'm going to randomly almost uh, uh, sabotage uh, the vehicle. I'm going to pull one little tiny thing out or even just move one thing. And suddenly you can't trust that entire vehicle. You can't trust it to operate. You can't trust it to even start. You have no idea what I've removed from it. And as simple as that one little tiny thing is, that's how important that one little tiny thing is. Now let's do it backwards. We're building the vehicle from scratch. Our goal is to not have one of those situations. So when you start with that as a model that everything is failing to begin with and you're trying to correct it all and you recognize how temperamental all designs are in that if even one little thing is wrong and you don't know what that one thing is, it could destroy everything. It could be a bolt that allows the uh, uh, brakes to operate and your brakes are going to fail or you don't even have the ability to change a gear. Now what? You're going to lose one way or the other. So I describe system design uh, into two completely separate universes. And one is path to success, and the other one is path to failure. It's a phrase I say constantly as I'm designing things with people, and we're working through what works and what doesn't. And so the first question, you have to keep everyone sort of like with blinders on. The first question you have to constantly say to people is, have you even accomplished a path to success? Have you even built an engine that gets you onto the road moving forward? Now, do you have a device that lets you stop the vehicle from moving forward? And you just take it step after step. Once you're done with all the paths to success, the things that you know will work, 
Then you spend your time trying to prevent, find, and succeed in removing the failures. It's a whole separate mindset. It's a different type of person who does this. And you really shouldn't mix the two together. You should just solve how to make things work and then separately solve the other parts. And there's a lot of great uh, books and designers uh, throughout history that have written this up. I know a lot of the Apple people uh, talk about this. They talk about it in slightly different terms, um, but they often speak of getting something out that works and then worrying about the bugs later. Uh, don't worry about iterations. You'll eventually get there. Uh, and that's a, that, that I agree with this. As long as you do have a path to success, don't worry about fixing all the failures immediately. And so this is a huge part of the uh, systemic side of all design is that people want things to be perfect, in- including uh, viewing yourself as, as, a, as, as a system. You know, you, you deal obviously wonderfully in the area of, uh, of optimizing for physical health. And, and, I've, and I think the first time I even met you, I said, you know, I, I could see it in you and I recognize exactly what you were just by the way you looked and the way you moved and the way you spoke of it and how you lit up about your topics. I know that look. I, I know it when I'm designing a computer and my team together, we're building something. We have the exact same thing where we, we recognize it's a long-term uh, system to be worked on and that you have to love what you're doing. And you start with, look, I found six, seven things that work. And you know there's a whole bigger list of things that don't work, but you're going to start. And, and you start that process going forward. So that is a huge part for me in all of this is really understanding that there's, there's, there's one process to make and there's another process to prevent the thing you made from failing. So that would be the innovation versus the fixing side of things. Exactly. Exactly. So innovating is, innovating is easy. Um, uh, uh, I'll, I'll give you one more that's just, this is so common, is um, uh, I hire painters every once in a while. And I, I used to be a fine painter, and of course I also can paint my house you know, perfectly. But it's very hard for me to find a painter because I can't get all, even professional painters, painters who've painted for decades, really have a tough time uh, executing even what they say. And what they say is, yeah, we get that uh, it's mostly prep, but they don't act on it. And so um, I've, I've recently, uh, in the past like 10 years, I've started uh, making my painter sign an agreement. And it says that uh, it's not done until there's no paint on any hardware. It's a very simple sentence. And I have a list of things, examples of hardware. That includes uh, screws and uh, doorknobs and, and hinges and hardware. If it's not wall, it's not being painted. <laughs> and so I don't care if they paint it, but they're not getting paid until they unpaint the mistakes. And so, again, we think of it as path to success. Yeah, I really appreciate that you painted my house. You also painted the floor and you painted my sculptures and you painted my furniture. I don't want that. So it is a, it is a, it is a fascinating process. It's like take the time. I'm paying you to unscrew every hinge. I'm paying you to take every door off the, uh, off, off the frame. And then painting is really, now that I've you know, done so many different types of projects, it's a top, tops. It's 3% of your time, the actual painting. The the uh, and that's a good painter painter using a proper you know uh, a brush and everything because if they're doing proper brush work then the work around them that has to be pr- protected you know saved from failure uh, is even greater and so you you mentioned a concept uh, at the beginning of this about um, about how you optimize you know for your for your own body and and I'll tell you the uh, uh, you, the subtle statement you were making was trying to optimize and understand. Uh, why it's difficult to optimize. And that's a whole concept of path to failure, path to success, which falls into fail safe. 
Fail-safe is the concept of building things so that when you don't spend energy on them, they do the right thing. And it comes from the security industry. So as an example, if the power goes out in a building and the doors are all uh, secured by magnets or whatever device, we have a new problem. If the power is out and people are inside and it's on fire, how do they get out? So failing safe is this fascinating balancing game of, well, I don't want to let people come in when the power goes out, but I also want to let people get out. So you have to build specialized mechanisms just for failing safe. Uh, uh, I'm working on a book uh, I've mentioned to you uh, for, for, for the legal world. And the, the fundamental theme of the book, I call it winning contracts right now, but the fundamental theme is failing safe, which is building contracts that don't require more lawyers to get involved when things go wrong or when things just peter out. Let's okay. say three years are up. Yes. That book is, is destined to fail. That book is indeed. I'm sorry, you're writing a book for attorneys about how to write a contract that needs less attorneys. (laughs) It's actually not for attorneys, although I suspect attorneys are going to be a very large percentage of my book buying group because some of the stories in them are very useful to attorneys to understand uh, new types of laws and new types of agreements that, that, in fact, their clients are expecting. See, what's interesting is not just is the law profession changing because of the lawyers. The law profession is changing because of the clients. The clients fight differently uh, in, in, in very much the way the economy has, um, I'll use the word, coagulated into extremely wealthy and then everyone else left very poor, although I, I personally not not to get into a long talk on that. I don't think those two are actually connected to each other as everyone else does. But similarly here, I think you have a market of people who, as the, as the generation of computer users come into uh, into their own businesses and so forth, they have a different expectation of everything, not just software and hardware and their car and how they buy a house, everything, how they operate, interact with their money, where it's stored, how they have access to it, and contracts. And in terms of contracts, they want things simpler. People will say, look, we already know there's going to be a fight. Why do we have to put every single word in? You're going to fight anyways. This is a big one that's, uh, that's, uh, that's very popular in the legal world. And systemizing uh, contracts themselves. There's now new services. Uh, an old acquaintance of mine started a company that uh, you know does online contracts. It's very large. And it uh, and they've done beautifully. And, and funny enough, they originally were going to do um, contract processing software, meaning like project management, case management. And then they realized that the bigger money was in just simplifying it and realizing that across the world, everyone needs the same agreements. Well, that's what people expect. So the, the, it really is the other way around. The, I'm writing a book that talks about how this is happening, how it happened and what we've learned from thousands of contracts out there that itself is a fail-safe situation uh we we, we we begin to understand that people uh don't themselves understand why certain things are so tough so difficult and it's interesting um uh i'll tell you there's i i often think about like um how nails come out of wood. It's a a subtle but simple concept, but as things move around, the nails are going to come back out again. That's a fail situation. What can you do to mitigate that at least? Countersinking the nails is one of them. Using screws instead of nails, even better. Better hold. But what if by default, whatever it was was getting tighter? A mortise and tenon is a great example of that, like on furniture made by Quakers, where the the rest position of the table causes it to become stronger as the gravity pulls on the wedge-shaped pieces of wood. And as it even gets moved around a little bit, it tightens up. It doesn't loosen up. That is a great example of failing smart. That is a really elegant design. And I'd love to see more of that in code and in, in health. 
Exactly. Well, let's switch gears a bit because you're really kind of known as a life hacker to a lot of people. And uh, I think maybe your your personality as a TV host is, is a part of that and maybe less of a biohacker. So like, how do you hack or optimize the different parts of your life? Like, what do you do for time management? What do you do for your lifestyle? What do you do for work? Like, give me a picture of how you've optimized the systems of your life so you can get more done or you can be higher performance. Um, I'm going to quote Tom Wolf because he was asked a very similar question, funny enough, about uh, uh, people of the past, including Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin and so forth. And Tom Wolf's answer was, they don't use labor-saving devices. When I first heard that, I thought he was making a joke. And uh, wow, as you get older, you really begin to comprehend. What I find when I'm uh, spending time with younger people, let's say people in their uh, teen, late teens and early 20s, is they have a fear of working hard. They have a fear often of, of doing things what they perceive as inefficient or slow, but they've never had a baseline to work from to know what that really means. So I'll just do it right then and there. And probably the biggest thing I've learned in terms of my own self-hacking is making an intelligent decision of what things to do immediately versus what to document and track. And so if you're tracking a large list, let's literally speak of like a thousand things, which is a huge list for most people to handle. I, I deal with, I, I can tell you because of course I track everything. I mean, literally every little tiny thing. Um, I track right now about 67,000 line items. I'm looking at some of them on my computer right this moment. And some of them are extremely small. They include things like labeling all of my cabinets. Um, and some of them are in more detail where they actually describe a specific label that needs to go in a specific place. Sometimes the overhead of writing it down is greater than the work itself. And that's where you have to be very careful because the list itself gets so large that what you end up doing is becoming overwhelmed by it. And this is, again, something I hear from a lot of people. They, they, they believe they're going to be overwhelmed. When I hear that, what I usually think to myself is, well, this person needs to reset their expectations. They need to know what real pain is. Not that I want people to be in pain, but they need to understand what is valuable and how they want to spend their time. So there's a series of books out there right now, and there's a series of movements out there about um, uh, self-hacking and, and, and hacking people's own time. Some of these stories that I read out there, they read a little funny to me. They, they, they don't quite match up to what I've seen in the real world. Um, but to answer your question as to how I do it for myself – which in theory, I would only speak to this if it had some value to everybody else, you really have to ask the most amazing set of questions. Coming again back to my statement about uh, uh, path to success, path to failure, you really have to ask yourself not just what do you want in your life, but what don't you want in your life, and you have to make them two columns. You have to make a clear list. Uh, I, I bought a house once, and um, uh, I looked at 50 houses before I bought my actual house. And I told the uh, real estate agent that that's what I was going to do, and they thought I was kind of joking. I said, and they, they came to learn that nothing I say is a joke in that sense, and that uh, everything has a plan. There's a reason for absolutely everything I do. So I looked at 50 houses, and I'd give. And in, in the first 10 or so, I, I, I completed my list. I started with a list, but I completed it after looking at the first 10. Uh, that was enough of a sample group. I knew what I wanted and what I didn't want. And so as an example of what I wanted is I wanted a large structure uh, next to my property that I could at least own or buy uh, where I could store stuff, where I could put my laboratory. And, uh, uh, and I got that when I finally bought the house. Uh, there was a list of things I didn't want. And at the top of that list was noise. Anything that causes noise, people that are noisy, pe neighbors that are the type of neighbors that could be noisy, I made a big list. I did have to settle on a type of noise. I, I moved uh, that particular house was a, a house with a school nearby. And I went to that location three or four times uh, over a one-week period, 
early in the morning, late in the afternoon, and on the weekends to find out just how noisy it was. And I discovered something, which is that the times that I cared about the most, it was, it was dead quiet, like the weekends where I wanted them to myself. I don't mind during the day because I expect noise. There's going to be noises anyways. And I usually wasn't around the house during the days, you know, like on, through, through the week. So it worked out extremely well for that, but it was a huge compromise. It was the biggest one I had to make. On, on the grand picture, having to make one compromise, I made a huge list of pros and a huge list of negatives and cons, and that was the only con on the list that I had to put up with. Uh, there were others, but they, 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 that wasn't that, I'd have to deal with that. So when you're, when you're talking about yourself, this is even more focused. You have to make a real list of what you want and what you don't want. And it's funny, I just recently was discussing this exact concept in it, but in a different uh, medium, which was what people really find attractive in other people and how that changes over time. Um, I will admit something, uh, which is that I grew up, when I was younger, I was, I was a, a stylist and I did a lot of art stuff. And I would, do, I would work on runway models. I was, I was doing makeup and styling. I was surrounded by the most beautiful uh, women ever. And they somewhat set my expectation and what I perceived as what I wanted. But funny enough, I never dated any of them, even when they hit on me. And it's because they were vacuous. It, it's not, I'm not saying models are vacuous. That, that, isn't, that is not my statement. I'm saying these models, the ones I happen to be encountering, and at their age, they were you know, between 17 and you know, 20 years old. And I just couldn't even have a conversation. I, I, even when I was sitting there doing their makeup and they would be talking to each other, I kind of wanted to strangle them. Like, I just stop talking. And, uh, and, and it was just because, of course, of the content. And it was such a huge turnoff. And as you get older, you have to try to um, uh, match those. But a subtle thing popped out. And, I, and I'm mentioning this because it's an interesting uh, part of, uh, of human health. I would perceive that I liked that level of thinness. And then something happened. I finally dated a woman that was that model thin. And I found that touching them became a new problem. You remember, I'm, I'm neurotic, and I admit this up front, but I'm talking about something that a lot of guys don't talk about, which is, yeah, she was beautiful visually and at a distance and even close up for a camera because she was a model. But when I touched her, I realized there was no muscle. There was no tone. She wasn't really healthy. I could feel how unhealthy she was. She was just basically skin on bones. And it's great as a hanger for clothing. But she wasn't healthy. Now, there's a lot of very thin people that are healthy. And when you feel the difference, you suddenly get it. And you realize that your original model of the universe, often based, especially for men, on models that are presented to them, they don't know what it really is to touch it, to feel it, and to find out, mm, you might not like it. And so I have, over the years, had to correct my model of what I thought was attractive from what I actually realized was attractive and they were not the same. This is a, a really big distinction, and I deal with this with some of my uh, executive coaching clients sometimes. And there's a set of things that you're supposed to like, so you tell yourself that you do like them because you're supposed to like them, and then there's a set of things you actually like. And a lot of people never really pay attention to what they actually like, either until later in life or they just never do because they aren't supposed to like the things they actually like, so therefore they don't like them, and they get caught up in this weird internal dialogue that's nearly invisible to the average person. It sounds exactly. like you may have had some of that. Ab absolutely. And, uh, and, and I, I, I can give it a number. I can say that uh, uh, it's about a 40% difference, meaning what I visually – and I'm still, I, I, there's the artist in me. So what I visually perceive as attractive for clothing is not what I would perceive as attractive in my personal life necessarily. It's not to say that I wouldn't be attracted to a very thin woman. It's to say that she better be healthy. 
Uh, it, it better be, there better be more to it than that. But I have found that I'm off, I'm off in terms of my um, uh, uh, cultural model versus my uh, happiness model, my physical model, the one that I would actually prefer, it's about 40%. We can speak of it as weight, but I'm speaking mostly of muscle and tone and lifestyle and energy yeah, and all of those of things. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Well, speaking of health, yes. you keep lists of 67,000 things and you think about systems. What have you done to systematize your health? So I've done a lot of things that are odd, probably. Um, uh, so the first thing is I have a project I keep. Uh, I design, of course, project management software, but I use it in really odd ways. Uh, and in fact, when I designed my system, I designed it as a whole life manager. But yeah, you can use it for business or you can use it personally. So in my personal uh, manifestation of it, uh, I have a project and the project inside the project, you have calendars and files and you have uh, uh, all the conversations and wikis, you know, documents that you can edit online. And I track all my health issues. So in fact, I have everything I've ever done with any doctor ever, what I've paid them, what I've received, any, any pills I've taken, it's all listed. And in fact, I can just hand a link to a new doctor and say, don't ask me questions here, read. And you can, and here's how search works on your browser and you can find keywords that you care about. And uh, they're always amazed by this, of course. Sure, so step one amazing. was, was <laughs> oh yeah, yeah they're, they're, they're always quite taken with it. Um, so step one is uh, documenting, you know, the topology, get, you know, uh, as Intel, you know, this is classic. I have a classic military background. Um, you know, Intel first. You've got, you've got to know what you know. So now I know what I know. I know how many pills I've taken. I know my problems. And, and I identified a problem that I didn't comprehend because medicine was not my primary focus. Uh, I've been given a lot of antibiotics over my life because of uh, uh, sore throats, which I came to learn I should not have been taken, taking. And as a result of taking them, I've uh, weakened my uh, resistance to uh, antibiotics uh, and, more, and more importantly, to the things that get into your system. And so each time you're just it's making it worse and worse. It'd be better to suffer through a few of the bouts uh, uh, than it's not to. And the only way I understood this was really looking at my entire history and seeing the sheer quantity uh, and forgetting about it over you know, 30 and 40 years. Uh, so step one, Intel, uh, gathering a picture of who you are physically and, and where you are and looking at your past in terms of your weight fluctuations and what caused it and when you felt happiest and so forth. Yeah, so I was big on documenting. I didn't spend a, I didn't spend a lot of time on that, I should mention. Um, in fact, most of the uh, medical information was just uh, going through old uh, receipts and stuff and having uh, an assistant you know, scan stuff in and then just date stamp everything into a spreadsheet. It, you know, it probably took four or five hours to really get everything together. And again, that's one of those labor-saving devices issues. It's like, no, there was no way around it. I'm just going to scan it. We're going to have to read it by hand and we cross-checked each other and you know, my assistant myself and they would do some and I would do some and then we would swap and make sure we didn't miss anything. And it was just, you know, boring, horrible, annoying work worth every bit. So that was step one. Step two was I keep a, uh, I keep a document, a list in a wiki, which is uh, everything from what I have to have done to what I would like to have done. You know, it's always a surprise when people uh, uh, announce, especially men, what they do to improve, improve themselves. I lightened my teeth when I was younger. It's one of the best things I ever did. It, it, shaves, it shaves years off me. I dye my hair. I have gray hair. And uh, people are always surprised by that. In fact, my, uh, my co-host on the show has white hair. But in real life, he has dark hair. He bleaches it white. And I do the opposite. And in fact, an invention was shown to us, which was a hair dyeing product. Uh, and it was funny because this guy was showing us like 20 inventions. And he, he, he shows us one after another. And it's, it was almost like a carrot top, you know, showing you some joke. And he gets to this one invention. And it's this, uh, it's this cool idea with a sponge. And it, you break it. And then you can just wash it into your hair without having to do too much work. And both my co-hosts and myself went, that's great. We'd like one of those. And the crew 
that was in front of us, there was like 20 guys, you know, with cameras and everything around us, the, uh, the producers and everything. Afterwards, they said, do you really want to say that on, on national television that you guys dye your hair? And we like, kind of looked at each other like, well, we do. It's like, we don't have any problem. You know, look, we made the decision to be in front of a camera. It's not going to be a whole lot of hiding in public. So it's like, let's not play any games here. If people want to know, they can know. And yeah, absolutely. I, I've dyed my hair for about 10 years. Um, so that's an example of, let's call it the, uh, you know, the superficial, et cetera. And then there's things like, you know, uh, surgery on your face. Uh, that's a more, you know, it gets more and more serious into things you want to do for yourself. I will one day. I probably will go to Asia or something and get, uh, you know, uh, uh, lines, you know, just, just tweaked a little tiny bit because I want to I want to look like on the outside what I feel on the inside I mean, I'm, I'm aging very slowly internally I have higher energy than most teenagers but yeah physically I look in a mirror and I don't recognize myself anymore and it happens very fast okay that's all the superfluous stuff now we get into the more serious stuff uh, having your teeth done and fixed and so one of the things in terms of hacking that's probably one of my uh, best ones I can give you here is I make a list of it all. I make a list of uh, the best prices I'm aware of, and then I have to do the basic math in the wiki that explains sort of what my current insurance situation is. Because hey, taking care of yourself is expensive. It's uh, it's your third largest expense statistically after buying a car, uh, and then for some people it's more expensive than your car, and for some people it's more expensive than buying a house. So this is a very serious situation. Everyone should be tracking this uh, and recognizing that small things when you're a teenager become much bigger things later, and looking for deviations uh, in in, in in your uh, in your overall performance and health so i've tracked a lot of things and just made notes in general so keeping your teeth going well um as you get older it gets harder it gets more expensive uh insurance gets more difficult there's a certain point as an example where the deductible in america is higher than the cost of the airplane flight and all of the work in asia so if you're having enough done, that's a huge thing that I track, and I weigh it in terms of both time and money, which is I don't have to have it done right this moment, but every day that goes by, uh, given ailments, can become worse. So teeth are a big one of that, and I have a lot of friends who do sort of these uh, uh, South American or Asian tours where they just go over there, spend a month there hanging out and enjoying themselves, and in the middle of it, they get the work done, they leave enough time afterwards if anything should go wrong, and also for healing and so forth, and then they come back. And all said and done, they've spent truly one-fifth maximum and often between one-tenth and one-twentieth of the price in America, all taken into account. Yeah, medical tourism is uh, is an incredibly interesting idea, especially because you can do things outside the U.S. that you can't do here. Um, some of the people who uh, I talk with in the context of the Bulletproof Executive are going to Europe and getting you know, stem cell treatments that are repairing amazing things as well as just some of them giving them just insane muscle growth and things like that. So it's it's also access to lower costs as well as new technologies that are less regulated in other markets. So there's there's definitely a reason to schedule your surgery outside the U.S. And certainly Absolutely. I would do Absolutely. that. I live in Canada now where it's, it's free, but I would probably still go outside uh, of Canada uh, in order to get some certain types of things done because it's going to be better work uh, for ultimately less money and less waiting. And, and I think one of the things that people are perhaps most surprised by is is the sheer quantity, and it's huge, of UCLA, USC trained individuals working in these other countries. They expect, I'm, I'm naming just two colleges that happen to be local to California, but you'd be surprised where their degrees come from. And you, in fact, can hunt them down by that. And so you have this knowledge that they understand not just the medical knowledge that you expect them to have, but they understand the culture quite a bit. So communicating with them is much easier because, in fact, they spent four to seven years years in America learning. Yeah, that really helps. 
It, it's important to me. Um, I appreciate the medical institutions, and of course, you know, Germany is wonderful. You know, you 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 you, you have there's a certain uh, uh, of the many things I, I personally don't like about Germany, um, uh, although it's wonderfully clean. I really appreciate doctors there. Uh, I don't expect them to have much of a bedside manner. I expect them to be really good at what they do and be very serious about it. And I've, I have found that in, in historically. And so each country has sort of an issue that goes with it, and you have to you, you have perceptions which may be true or not true until you know the country well. And so I found that the medical professionals in New Zealand, as an example, are are just wonderfully kind and patient. And I've met about five or six doctors there, in different for different reasons in different places, and they all have sort of a similar personality. And it's different than the ones here in America. And I'll tell you, the the, the and I have many friends that are medical doctors in America that both have general practices or work in, in hospitals, and it's just sad they don't get to practice their art. And it is an art. It's an art of working with people and identifying problems and so forth. And they have the greatest uh, uh, enemy of that time. They're given, especially at the uh, general practice level, they're given just shy of 14 minutes. Any time they go over that, they're losing money. At that point, they're barely making money, and they're spending a lot of time doing paperwork. And as they get it less than that, that's where their profit actually comes in. And that's sad. That, that is the state of it. So you you are being rushed because, in fact, you're being rushed, not by the doctor, but because of all the paperwork and the economics of how their system works. Yeah, it's the system itself that does it. But but some of the, the very best physicians that I've worked with don't take – they just don't take insurance anymore. It's not even worth their time to interact with the insurance companies. So you walk in the door, they say, look, my first appointment is at least an hour, and it's 400 or $500. And after that, if you want to see me at minimum half hour, it's going to cost you 250 bucks cash. And exactly. they won't even give you some of them, uh, an ICD nine, like you cannot build to insurance. Others will allow you to build to insurance, but they'll never speak to your insurance company. So if your insurance company objects, then it's your job to deal with it. And once you try and do that and deal with your own insurance company, you realize exactly why it's so expensive to be a doctor. Cause they have to have a whole staff of people to push back on the insurers. So it, it gets to be uh, frustrating. And the ones I know who have decided to do either a concierge medicine uh, kind of model or one where it's just, you know, you come in and I, I treat you well and, you know, we, we make it work. Uh, those are some of the happiest and most effective physicians I've met. And those are the ones that I tend to see myself. You actually just reminded me of something. Uh, this is probably worth sharing. So here's something I've done, and it takes a little bit of uh, uh, boldness to do this. I've learned. I, I didn't personally view it this way, but it was. It's been said back to me that uh, uh, that it's a different way of thinking of this, which is. Um, uh, I, uh, uh, stopped school when I was uh, 13. So I have always viewed, uh, people who went to college and so forth as having a very specialized knowledge that I can buy. I view, I view education in a human as a uh, resource, an object that I can purchase time on. And so I very much enjoyed, uh, uh, in my companies having people that had other disciplines like biologists and so forth. And I would sometimes just say, look, you're, I'm already paying for your time. You want to just kick back for a few hours and you teach me some biology because I, I never, I never took biology in school. Sometimes I never, I never spent that time there. I started my companies very early. So. I view medical doctors the exact same way. So I have a uh, anesthesiologist as an example uh, because I have a, a phobia of needles. And so he puts me out ahead of time. And I have him contact the hospital. I have him contact the other doctors and tell them how they're going to operate and deal with me because I've already explained everything to him. And the way that happened is I just simply called him up one day and said, I want to buy an hour of your time. It can be any time you want, though. It doesn't have to be during your normal hours. I don't care. I'll send you the money ahead of time. I just want a comfortable one hour to just ask you lots of questions. 
And back then, I think it was a couple hundred bucks. This is maybe 20 years ago. And today, probably a lot more expensive. But the idea is amazingly simple because it's so valuable. And I had the advantage of seven years of his experience in college and learning to be able to become a doctor and the ability to have him be patient and relaxed because, of course, he's not on that 14-minute time uh, slice. And I just was a, I already had a list of questions I wanted to ask, and I wanted, to, I wanted the comfort of going anywhere the conversation went. So I probably had 20 minutes worth of written-down questions, and I had 40 minutes worth of, hey, let's just chat, and you tell me stories about where I'm going to run into problems, and, and you're going to point out the things I didn't think to ask. One of the most valuable hours I ever spent with him, uh, other than the rest of the time where, of course, he has me out on a table. Uh, but I've done this with many doctors, and I've done this with many other professions as well, where I've just hired somebody and said, what's an hour of your time cost? And, and again, we can do it after hours, outside your business. I don't care. I just need the hour. And by giving them that freedom, the price comes down. That's where the negotiation happens. I've done this with lawyers that have worked with me uh, and just said, look, listen, I, I, need, I need an hour outside of everything else. Come sit with me. So I'd say that that's probably one of the greatest hacks I've done to myself is truly comprehending others as the same resource they perceive me as. It's kind of interesting the number of physicians who are now doing remote Skype work. Uh, my wife, oh, for yeah. example, Carolyn's a trained physician. She runs a, a fertility uh, and pregnancy wellness consulting practice uh, from a home office. And, you know, to get an hour with a doctor who's looking at you, even though it's over a video camera, who will talk anything you want to know about your pregnancy, it is so relaxing for people exactly. to get to do that because you don't get to do that with your normal OBGYN. And it's not even an OBGYN context. It's, you know, the wellness and health. But to watch like the satisfaction that people get from the interaction you just described is really cool. And there's a lot of doctors saying, you know what, screw this noise. I can make, you know, 250 bucks an hour um, living anywhere I want as long as I have a webcam and I don't have needles, I don't have malpractice. Like it's just this thing. And I think that this is actually catching on and it's part of the whole biohacking, you know, take control of your health movement where the knowledge there is more valuable than the office visit unless there's going to be you know, needles and, and razor blades involved. Um, exactly. You don't need to go to the office anymore. It's very rare that you really actually physically have to be there after you've had that initial physical visit with at least some doctor. And it all depends on what type of questions you're asking and the ones you're describing exactly what you're planning for the future. You want to talk to somebody about your issues first and you want them to have that uh, that, 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 that state of mind to relax. Um, uh, so yeah, it's been, it's been a wonderful thing. And I mentioned for doctors and it's, and it's, and it's the same thing even for a physical health, uh, situation. I, uh, I, I was injured pretty badly once, um, I was hit by a racehorse. Uh, I shouldn't have been on the track. No, I'm kidding. I was actually off on a, uh, hiking trail and, and, and a racehorse came along and hit me. Um, and it was amazingly traumatic for me, of course, as it should be, uh, when you, when you have that happen, but it's because I've really done, uh, a lot of work to not, not be hurt in my life. I don't, I don't usually do very dangerous sports or anything. And one of the keys behind it was that I treated everybody as the situation where I knew that I needed to get a lot of information very quickly. And so I would just start immediately asking the doctors, uh, I'm seeing you right now, but may I come back later and and uh, and pick your brain, basically? And uh, that's been that's been really a fun thing where you get them comfortable. Uh, and some some of them will say no. Uh, I I don't think I ever had anybody say no to me, but I could already kind of tell before I asked that they were going to be uh, you know open to it. Um, but it was new to them, and it was they didn't even know quite how to charge. And I've had many situations, of course, where they're like, well, let's just go to lunch and we'll just talk, and they didn't even charge me. I'm not suggesting that'll be the case as time goes on, but. Uh, because it was sort of a novel idea to them. No one had ever even asked them this, ever. They'd never been asked, 
hey, can I just have an hour of your time just to talk it all through? Uh, and so I think that, that's, that's where that boldness statement comes in, is people think, oh, that's, you know, it's kind of a bold idea, and it really isn't. We are all here to help each other. They want, they, they're in that business. They're doing that well. Uh, and then after that, this is one of the most interesting ones, uh, I found a, um, a physical fitness trainer, and I chose that over uh, just having a physical therapist. So I started with a physical therapist. That was key. I discussed it with a physical therapist about getting into physical training, and I went to a guy who had 20 years of hardcore experience, you know, did all the certificates. But I, I got to admit, I kind of thought of him as sort of like a very large Arnold Schwarzenegger-looking aerobics instructor. And as I got to know him, it helped a lot, but I started off with him telling me how much it would cost to, uh, to sign up for his program. And I said, you know, right up front, I'd like an hour of your time. And I want to just hang out with you for an hour. And he thought that was very odd. He'd never come across quite that before. I said, no, I just want to, I want to be able to ask you whatever I want to ask you for one hour. It'll all be on, on topic. It's all about, you know, physical fitness. But I want to ask you what I want to ask you, not your program. And so we did. And that's what convinced me. And then I plopped down. Uh, that was about, right, ended up costing me about uh, 10% of the total price. And then I ended up paying him uh, uh, for several months of hardcore training. And he taught me wonderful things. And the most important thing he taught me, aside from not hurting myself, was what the pain threshold should be in relation to the amount of work I was doing because I had, I, I'm a very geeky, I'm a big guy, but I'm actually very geeky. I, I sit at a chair a lot and I had no mile marker. I had no understanding of what a mile marker was going to feel like once run. And now I did. And, and then we sort of started the conversation there where, where um, having a frame of reference to how much pain you're going to be in, in, in improving your life, how much work something takes. I didn't have that. And so he set that for me and he said, this is what it should feel like. And this is how much pain you should feel. And this is how exhausted you should be afterwards. And if you're feeling things that are too far outside that norm, you're probably overdoing it or you have a problem. And it was great. And, and, and that made it so that the next time I picked up a set of weights, I had a more realistic understanding of what I should expect from my own body. That is profoundly good advice. Uh, most people don't ever get that level set for you know, how much pain is appropriate. So if you avoid all pain, you end up kind of being a wuss and you end up with suboptimal results. And if you ignore pain, you end up hurting yourself. So it, it's the fine tuning there. That, that's amazing. But we're, exactly. we're getting to the end of our call here. And there's one final question, one that I tend to ask every person who comes on the call. And that is based on your entire life. What are the top three things that you would recommend people do in order to be more bulletproof, in order to just kick more ass in all domains, your top three? Uh, my first one would be to establish a group of more than three people to which you ask these types of questions uh, so you get an, a, a point of view outside yourself. It's not something I think should be done online. It's not something you should do always in writing. I think you should be talking to people. And I have the exact same advice in business as I would for your personal health. Uh, establish basically a board of directors uh, who you or a board of advisors, if you want to call it that, uh, who you can speak to about these issues. You have to make it uh, uh, a group that you trust. The second thing is that you need to make that a habit because information changes constantly and your comprehension will grow very quickly. So the second one would absolutely be that you establish patterns to improve yourself. And the third one, and this is one that I uh, uh, accidentally did early on, is that I hated exercise. So many years ago, I came up with a great trick. I thought, well, if I'm entertained while I exercise, I'll probably do it more. So I started hiking, and then I started inviting friends of mine to hike with me. And we started the hike group, Hike the Geek. And the actual goal of Hike the Geek was to distract me from the fact that I hated hiking. 
So establishing patterns so that you, the things you do every day, this would be my third one. It, the third point would be establishing patterns so that instead of going out for lunch, you go out for a walk or that the walk is part of the lunch and that all the people that you're around, the things you're doing anyways, that you're being entertained, that you're making it part of your pattern to be more physical. Reichardt, thanks a ton for your advice and for being on the show today. If people want to know more about you, what URL should they go to? Oh, I don't know. I guess you should do the same thing I do, which is just Google me every day. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. uh, there, there isn't any one site. Um, if you want to watch the uh, show Invention USA, you can go to the History Channel to see that, historychannel.com. Um, uh, I'm, I'm on the web in many different ways, and so if you, if you, can, if you can figure out how to spell my name, uh, I'm easy to look up. Spell it for us. Uh, my first name, Reichart, R-E-I-C-H-A-R-T. My last name, two words, V as in Victor, O-N as in Nancy, new word, W-O-L-F as in Frank, S-H-E-I-L-D. I have to say that is definitely a biohacker name. <laughs> it was the name given to me. <laughs> on that note, Reichart, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for being on the show. Look forward to the next time we hang out. Thank you. Bye-bye. Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.